Hello, and welcome to episode 51 of The World According to Gar. Uh, this is going to be a very short episode today because uh, I'm leaving tomorrow morning for uh, Goatsis. We are competing for the first time in 16 months. Um, Damien's excited. I'm excited. Dennis excited. We are thrilled to be going to uh, the best track meet in the world at Goatsis, the hypo meeting as it's called. Um, it is a fantastic venue, a fantastic city, a beautiful place in the world. I mean, we were talking about it on Wednesday when we were driving back from, uh, from pole vault and, and Dave Collins was asking, you know, is there some place in the world that you think you could live or what's the most beautiful place you've been? And I was like, I think I could probably live in Goatsis. It's that good. So we're thrilled to be going and it's something new, you know, after all this, uh, it, it kind of feels like you know, a rat in a cage running on a, running on a treadmill, like one of those, one of those hamsters just on the wheel going around and around and around. It's been a little bit of that, right? The, the kind of the, the groundhog day of, of years. Um, so it's nice to be doing something different. It's nice to be doing something that counts, you know, that, that matters. And it's nice to, to finally put all this practice into, into, well, into practice. <laughs> so, uh, we're pumped about that. And I'm, I was looking at some of the stuff that we had to do. The amount of paperwork we've had to fill out is truly astounding. And it made me think of a couple of other things. So we had to sign waivers from, from Athletics Canada saying that basically indemnifying them from any sort of backlash if we get sick or get COVID. Then we found out at the last minute that we also needed to have supplementary insurance just in case we got COVID when we were overseas. And this is on top of, of course, filling out all the paperwork for, for Canada on the Arrive Can uh, uh, app when you ha- come back to Canada. And then, of course, you have to have a, a hotel that you stay in for three days or until you get your test back when you arrive back in Canada. And then there's your 14-day quarantine and all the things that have to go with it. And the tests that you have to get overseas while you're there, we had to sign up for those tests as well. Oh, and of course, we had to get tested here. It was just nothing like what people might think. It's been really hard. And I was thinking, you know, I had to fill out a whole bunch of stuff on the off chance that I do get to go to the Olympics. And Damien and I were talking about today, and it's, it's simply incredible what you have to sign away to go to the Olympics. There, there are a number of rules and well, there's a lot of rules that the, the new one for this summer, of course, is rule number 50, which basically states that athletes are not allowed to protest in any way, shape or form while they're at the Olympics. And, uh, and of course there's rule 40, which is everybody's favorite, which they did change a little bit this year, but basically rule number 40 says that anybody who's accredited at the Olympic games cannot appear in any advertising before or during, or even after the Olympics without permission from the IOC. In other words, you can only thank your sponsors, or at least up until these Olympics, you couldn't even thank your sponsors. Now in very special guarded circumstances and in specific words, and only if you've registered ahead of time, you're allowed to thank your sponsors at the Olympics. So every four years, you get a chance to make some money. Every four years, you get a chance to be famous and get a chance to win a medal. And you can't make any money off it. You can't thank your sponsors. You can't thank anybody who's not related to the IOC. In other words, if it's not an official sponsor of the Olympic Games, sorry, you can't mention them. Oh, and by the way, you also have to sign away your rights to any images of you that are used by the IOC, right? When you go to the Olympics, they own every image of you that's taken and they can use those in perpetuity. Get this, if let's say, I don't know, your coach 
films you at the Olympics and then puts it on his, I don't know, personal blog or throws it up on Instagram, the IOC can not only sue you and make you take it down, but they can also claim that image and use it in perpetuity. So when they came up with rule 50, just this past year, um, a number of athletes were unhappy about it. And a British sprinter by the name of Adam, Adam Jumili, uh, went off the other day and he said, basically, fuck you. Don't you think even for a second that you can tell me what to do and what I can and can't say. You don't own me. You guys don't pay anybody. All you do is collect money. And he said, why did they celebrate Tommy Smith and John Carlos, who, by the way, had their Olympic medals stripped for protesting at the 1968 Olympics in Mexico City? Now they're seen as heroes and, and the IOC and the Olympic Committee and movements in the, even in the U.S., the U.S. Olympic Committee, hail these guys as heroes and human rights you know, specialists and all this kind of bullshit. But at the time, they took their medals away and blackballed them forever. And now they're saying that other people can't do that, but those guys were heroes for doing it. And Adam Jamili said something that really rang true with me. He said, as bad as it sounds, athletes have always been at the bottom of the pecking order. We don't have any power, but we're actually the ones who are entertaining the world. And it's 100% true. The athletes have no power. They've tried over the, over the years to start sort of a, a union, but it's, it's really difficult to do when you have all sorts of athletes in all sorts of different sports from all sorts of different countries who speak all sorts of different languages. And for a lot of people, getting to the Olympics is the big thing. It's not winning something at the Olympics, it's getting there, right? Because getting there as an Olympian gives you a certain cachet and enables you to go and do, you know, speaking engagements and talk to people and be somebody, but again, it only comes around every four years and all the money is raked in by the International Olympic Committee who then says, oh, we disperse this money all over the world and do all sorts of great things, which isn't necessarily true. They pay for a whole bunch of people in a whole bunch of countries to work for them. But make no mistake, the Canadian Olympic Committee doesn't work for Canadian athletes. It works for the IOC. That's where their money comes from. So in all of this, you have to sign away things. So to compete for Canada, okay, you have to be in track and field. You have to be a member of Athletics Canada. And the only way to be a member of Athletics Canada is to be a member of Athletics Ontario or Athletics BC, right? So you have to sign a document agreeing to all their rules first. And all their rules are bent towards them, not towards the athletes at all. It's all about covering their own ass. For instance, in all this COVID stuff, we had to sign agreements, even though we get nothing from Athletics Ontario, we had to sign agreements with Athletics Ontario saying that we wouldn't sue them and that we would follow all their rules when we were practicing, even though they don't provide a single cent to anybody. And then we had to sign things from Athletics Canada saying that we wouldn't say anything bad about Athletics Canada and that we would always follow their rules. And that again, we would do anything or sorry, that we couldn't do anything like sue them if we got sick or something happened to us when we were attending an event overseas, right? We had to sign away all sorts of rights to Athletics Canada. And then if you make it the Olympics, you have to sign over all sorts of rights to the Canadian Olympic Committee and then all sorts of rights to the International Olympic Committee. At no point are any of those people paying the athletes. There's a certain amount of money that comes from the Canadian government that goes into carding right? 
That is the money that is given to athletes to allow them to live. And only the top athletes in Canada get it. And the most you can get is $1,800 a month. So it's minimum wage, right? That's the money. There's a, there is a portion of money that, yes, comes from the Canadian Olympic Committee through the IOC that helps fund some of that as well, but it's a smaller portion. It's mostly Canadian taxpayer money. So the Olympics don't pay anybody to win a medal. It's, you know, enough that you would have the honor of winning an Olympic medal. And they put on the Olympics, but of course the country who puts it on pays most of the freight, which is why we're having it in Japan, even though they're in a state of emergency. We're having the Olympics in Japan in the midst of COVID, way worse than it was when we canceled it last year, because there's $15 billion at stake for the people who set it up in Japan. There's also billions from advertisers that the International Olympic Committee would have to refund if they didn't have the Olympics. And that can't be allowed to happen. So I'm a supporter of the Olympics and I think it should go on. And I think that, you know, more things should be done to keep everybody safe. But I think it's important that something like this does happen to prove that we can get past the whole COVID thing. But I'm a little cynical about the motivation of the rest of the people. And this this brings me to, to uh, I, I don't know, maybe this is my rant. Maybe this whole thing's a rant. But um, I don't know if you've ever heard of her, but there's a, there's a, a congresswoman in the United States named, uh, a, a representative rather, named Katie Porter. I think she's from, from California. Anyway, she, um, she, she looks and sounds sort of like a, a middle-aged housewife, but she's actually smart as a whip and she does that on purpose to lull people into a false sense of security and then she tears them into an asshole in public. And she does this by bringing out a whiteboard and writing things on it. And she does all her research and then she entraps CEOs of companies by asking them simple questions that they lie about and then showing them the actual numbers in front of everybody else to show you what lying sons of bitches they really are. And she interviewed a guy from AbbVie, which is a huge pharmaceutical company. In fact, they, they make the most popular, uh, the most popular drug that requires a prescription in the world is Humira. Um, Humira is a, a gold mine for AbbVie because it doesn't cure anything. It just makes the symptoms go away. And it means that you take it forever right? Once you're on it, you're on it for good. And that's the kind of thing. I think the average person stays on it from seven to 10 years or something. And of course it costs thousands of dollars a week and you have to take it every week. So they interviewed, Katie Porter interviewed him, the CEO of AbbVie. And she said, how much money do you spend a year on research and development as a pharmaceutical company? And they spend $2.4 billion. Okay, so remember that number. $2.4 billion in research and development. How much money do they spend in litigation? And he couldn't quite tell them. Turns out it's $1.6 billion a year. <laughs> right? In lawsuits and lawyers' fees. Which is incredible. And how much do they spend in marketing? Well, they spend twice as much in marketing as they do in research and development. And again, all these drug companies will tell you that they spend tons of money in research and development and they need to get that money back. And that is complete and utter horseshit. They spend $4.7 billion a year. This is just one company on advertising. So their advertising budget is double what their budget is for research and development. 
Executive compensation? The CEO tried to tell her that it was 50 or 60 million. It's 334 million a year just to pay off the executives who make millions, sometimes tens of millions of dollars a year because their salaries and all their bonuses are based on the stock price of the company. And so she finished by saying, so how much money do you spend buying back your own stock, which is a way to increase the price of it, and paying dividends to shareholders? And he said, well, I really wouldn't. $50 billion a year. $50 billion. 20 times what they spend in research and development is spent simply buying back their own stock to drive up the price. And they use all of this, all of these lies are, are basically in place so that people will pay huge prices for drugs that don't need to be anywhere near that expensive. This is the kind of, of bullshit monopoly practices that, that go with a whole bunch of things that are happening right now in the world. And this is why I, I follow Cory Doctorow. He's a Canadian, British, American writer. And he's talking about, right, how, how they're trying to get an IP waiver, an, in, an intellectual property waiver. And I hate that fucking term, intellectual property. If you think of something, it's your intellectual property. What a crock of shit. But basically, what they're asking for is the rights to the vaccines, uh, right? The, the, the copyright to the vaccines, if you will, so that people in poor countries can make them. And a whole cadre of people, including obviously all the pharmaceutical company reps, their CEOs, all their lobbyists, and people like Bill Gates of all goddamn people, think that, oh, this is a terrible idea. <laughs> One of the things I actually heard somebody say was I actually heard them say, if we just gave it away, the, the Chinese and Russians might come up with cures for like heart disease and cancer. Oh, geez, what a terrible outcome that would be. But, but one of the things they were saying is, well, we can't let these poor countries make vaccines. First of all, you know, they're too primitive. I mean, they don't have the, they don't have the, the resources. They don't have the trained personnel. They don't have, and that's horseshit because where did most of Canada's vaccine come from during this whole thing? Uh, India, where the vast majority of it is made. And our vaccine, right? The, the AstraZeneca vaccine that was distributed all over Canada was made in India. So clearly that's a bullshit argument. And quite frankly, it's insulting. And then they say, oh, well, it's unsafe in those countries because they don't have the same standards we have. Oh, what about this fucking company emergent in the United States, which has, which has botched and contaminated, what, 100 million doses? Something like that already? Right? They fucked the whole thing up, the J&J &J vaccine. And get this, you know what they were getting a month from the government? $27 million a month from the government to help them produce this vaccine safely. And they were doing it in factories with paint peeling off the walls, people dragging bags of medical waste around in supposedly sterile places. They contaminate everything and then didn't admit to it, didn't acknowledge it, didn't find it themselves. It was only when they shipped it to other countries that they said, whoa, 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 this shit's not, not clean. This is, this, is, this is infected. There's something wrong with this whole batch. And then they said, oh, well, you know, our, our uh, whatever, our stringent protocols caught this. No, they didn't. During this entire time, right? This has been going on for over a year now. 
the executives at Emergent have gotten millions of dollars in bonuses. And the CEO is set to get $7.8 million this year for not producing a single usable vaccine, for fucking the whole thing up, for wasting a hundred million doses in the middle of a pandemic, he's going to get rewarded. And Bill Gates thinks that everybody, everybody needs to be protected from people who are going to steal their intellectual property. Anyway, that's a whole other topic because basically the laws that are in place, and this is, you know, more so in the United States than in other places, but really internationally, they empower firms to control not only their customers, but their competitors and critics. And the bigger the company, the more apt they are to do it, which is why monopolies are a huge problem and why they've grown out of control over the last 20 years. It's not just pharmaceuticals, although they're evil fucks, but there's also the whole tech industry and Facebook and Google and right, Microsoft, just buy up your competitors and shut them down, buy them up and shut them down. I mean, Google, Google came up with one idea ever, every other thing they've ever done, they bought. And it's the same with a lot of these things. And you look at what happens when they're monopolies. Look at even the, the partial monopoly that we have on, on cell phone shit in Canada and how expensive it is compared to the rest of the world. Monopolies are a bad thing. And it's not just that they're a bad thing. It's that it's growing to be an enormously problematic thing for the entire world in the midst of this pandemic. It's become very obvious that this is where the real problem lies. And so to, to turn this back to, to sort of, you know, sports and track and field, I'm really looking forward to going to the Olympics. And like so many athletes and coaches, you get very rare chances to go. And that allows these big, big organizations like the International Olympic Committee to bully the fuck out of individuals. Who, who wants to be banned from the Olympics, right? And so when somebody like this sprinter, Adam Jamili, stands up and says, hey, you try and stop me from saying something. If I got something to say and I'm on the podium, I'm saying it. So good for him. I support him. And if all the athletes said the same thing, we'd be fine. But a lot of athletes are never going to do that. They have one chance, one shot. They're not going to fuck it up. And a lot of them are from countries which would shit all over them from a great height if they did anything so embarrassing as protest on the podium. And I think for all those people who think that Olympic athletes are living high on the hog, they are not. They are people who, for the most part, are scraping by and surviving. And they spend huge periods of their life with their whole life on hold trying to make it to the Olympics. It's a very rare group at the top who actually make any money and win medals. So think of that when you're watching the Olympics this year. It's entertaining. It's fantastic. But the athletes aren't making any money. Don't kid yourself. Probably 1% of the people at the Olympics are actually making enough money to do more than survive. Okay, um, I'm going to read you a, a short, like I said, this is going to be a short uh, episode this week. And next week's episode, uh, I'll talk about that at the end. Um, I'm just going to read you a, a short uh, paragraph, sorry, paragraph, a short um, section about Sorit. Okay? Um, he's the one who ended up in the, uh, falling into the vent, and he woke up and there's a parasite on him. And even though it looks like a cute teddy bear, it's still a parasite. So, 
Um, this is section three of Soret. Years of being in other people's heads had ill-prepared Sort for being alone on an alien planet. But it did make him possibly the most perfect host for an alien parasite. And after a moment of revulsion while the creature crawled into his hood and nestled onto the nape of his neck, Sorit shrugged and began trying to get out of the vent. Now the northeastern end of Zelenia is the coolest, driest part of the vent and the most sparsely inhabited. Sorit had fallen into it at the shallowest point, but even so he had fallen nearly 200 meters before coming to rest near the bottom. Sorit picked his way along a rockfall covered in moss and tried to find any sort of a trail leading upward. It was hard going and he used the ice knife to slash a path through vines and foliage. Everything was so green and wet that it was frustrating trying to move at all, and after less than an hour, Sorit was hot, tired, and further into the vent than he had been when he awoke. After a short break, he looked up at the sheer walls, which were covered in the clean greenery that had broken his fall and saved his life, and he thought to himself that perhaps it would be easier to climb out. So he tried, climbing the, the vines and foliage that covered every square centimeter of the rock, and he found it much harder than it looked. For one thing, the vines and branches sagged and twisted under his weight as if they were trying to throw him off, but they also secreted various foul-smelling fluids and puffs of pollen or spores that made him cough, and several of the secretions were so sticky, even the environmental controls on his high-tech gloves began to gum up. And when he grabbed a thick vine that twisted in his hand to reveal a row of razor-sharp thorns tipped with the glistening drops of what he could only imagine were acid or poison, Sorit stopped. He climbed back down and ended up on a flat, mossy spot in the middle of a dense thicket of thorny bushes. It was the only flat place he had seen. He stopped and took another sip of water from his suit and leaned back to look up at the sky. Sorit was completely alone on an alien planet and bereft of data, and his communication train was so thorough that he literally could not stop himself from speaking to his only companion, the alien parasite riding in his hood. So... What do you think, little man? Which way is out? To his surprise, the tiny creature leaned up against his head and chittered softly in his ear. Say again, mate. This is your home, not mine. The creature chittered again more insistently and tugged Sorit's ear. Torrit turned to look, Sorit turned to look back at it and caught a movement in the greenery only a body length away. He spun around, eyes scanning, lost without his helmet. He backed away, the ice knife slipping into his hand and raised his left hand glove. He tapped for a menu and flicked his eyes down, then swept the glove in an arc in front of him. The sensor made a soft blip, and Sorit swung back, the sensor blipping repeatedly, and then the parasite tapped him on the left temple and yanked his ear hard. Sorit dropped his weight and lifted his left arm as he spun back to his left, and still he was barely fast enough. The animal that lunged straight out of the undergrowth was a brown blur that hit his arm hard enough that Sorit fell back, catching himself on his right hand and unable to use the knife. He heard the hiss and smelt the creature's breath and felt claws skittering off the suit's surface. Then he used the momentum of his fall to push back off the spongy surface and kicked out blindly with his left leg, making contact just as the parasite on his neck grabbed his right ear and saw it slash back blindly with the ice knife and made satisfying contact with something that screamed and crashed back into the bushes and then he saw the creature clearly for the first time. It was lithe and half as long as a man, brown and mottled with big forward-facing eyes and a pointed snout full of glistening teeth. The animal was almost impossible to see buried in the bushes, but as it lunged again, he realized it had all four feet extended, and all of them had claws. Rather than give ground and get closer to the bushes behind him, Sorit turned and slashed at the creature, which seemed to somehow pause in midair before flying back into the bushes. The parasite cheered again, and Sorit spun, and the third attacker launched itself at them, and Sorit realized he was anchored to a branch with a long and powerful prehensile tail. 
And again, the parasite on his head tapped and saw it spun. And as his eyes adjusted, he could see there were at least four of the creatures surrounding him, half hidden. They took turns lunging at him, lightning fast but wary of his knife. All of the animals reached back with their long tails, grabbing branches or vines, which allowed them to retreat as fast as they attacked. Sorit was tiring quickly and out of options, but then he felt something strange begin to happen. His heart rate began to speed up, as did his blood pressure. And after years of training, he recognized it right away. A slow-spreading euphoria that overwhelmed him. And Sorit went from desperate and exhausted to full berserker in about two minutes. It wasn't until much later that he worked out that the parasite had drugged him, with something that made the battle booster that the Prime Expeditionary Force used feel like light beer. Never had Sorit felt so big, so alive in his skin, so ready and willing to fight. He stopped spinning around and laughed out loud. He used his glove to change a setting on the suit, then howled and yelled, Come on, you puny rat fuckers, let's fucking go! He did a slow spin, making eye contact with the animals and said, yeah, like I thought, not a set of balls on the lot of you. I hope your skinny ass motherfuckers have about a hundred friends because otherwise you're fucked. Sort lunged at his nearest attacker while he finished yelling and the animal ducked back into the undergrowth like a snake. But the one behind him leapt on Sort's back, claws hooking into the uttermost layer of his suit. As Sort had expected, the suit went solid and the animal's claws were stuck and it couldn't retreat. It tore at him with its teeth, but couldn't penetrate the nanoparticle armor, and Sorit spun around, stretching the animal's tail taut. He reached down with his left hand, grabbed the tail, and sliced it off with one stroke of the ice knife. Sorit whooped and ripped the muscular tail as long as his leg, free from the branch. The animal still attached to his back, tore and scratched, and Sorit tapped his glove, and the suit went soft, and the animal fell, and Sorit turned and beat the terrified predator several times with its own bloody tail before it could scramble into the thicket. Come on, fuckers, is that all you've got? Ha <laughs> ha, I never thought it'd be this easy to get me some alien tail. I ain't gonna like this fucking planet. The animals melted away into the undergrowth, and Surit, Surit whirled the tail over his head and threw it after them. Behind him, the parasite chittered and stroked the top of his head, and Surit said, thanks, mate. You saved my ass. I guess you saved your own ass, too. And then his legs went wobbly, and he sat down and said, I'm not really gonna like this come down, am I? And that's it for tonight. This is a short uh, version. Um, like I said, uh, I'm leaving first thing in the morning for for Goetzes in Austria and really looking forward to it. Um, next week, I will not be able to post on Sunday as I normally do because uh, we'll be competing. Damien will be competing in his first decathlon in uh, a year and a half and uh, we'll be competing on uh, Saturday and Sunday, and we'll be flying back on Monday and I'm hoping to get it done and published on Tuesday. And that will be my, my, my yearly, my 52nd, uh, <laughs> my 52nd podcast. And it'll be the results and the experience, uh, at Goatsis this year. So I hope you tune in for that. And I hope, uh, that everybody is, uh, still happy a year into this. <laughs> if, if you are, if you've got any feedback, let me know. Uh, that's it for me and uh, I'll talk to you in 10 days.